So hello and welcome to TPI's podcast, To Think Minimum. It's Friday, April 10th, 2020, and I'm Tom Leonard, President Emeritus and Senior Fellow at the Technology Policy Institute. I'm joined by Scott Walston, TPI's President. Today, we're delighted to talk to Seth Stevens-Davidowitz. Seth is an author, data scientist, and speaker who studies what we can learn about people from new internet data sources. His 2017 book, Everybody Lies, was a New York Times bestseller and an Economist Book of the Year. Seth is a contributing op-ed writer for the New York Times and has worked as a visiting lecturer at the Wharton School and a data scientist at Google. He received his BA in philosophy from Stanford, where he graduated Phi Beta Kappa, and his PhD in economics from Harvard in 2013. He is a passionate fan of the Knicks, Mets, Jets, and Leonard Cohen. So welcome, Seth. It's a pleasure to have you on the TPI podcast. So this is obviously not a good year for sports fans, but I guess that gives you even more time to look at uh, data on the internet, Google data, and other data. So how did you get interested in that subject? First, thanks for having me, Tom. So when I was doing my PhD in economics, I was kind of, I don't know, I wasn't, I was kind of in a PhD program where I felt like maybe I'd made a mistake because I wasn't that passionate about traditional economics, like the interest rate, inflation. You know, I get a little bored in some of the classes. I'm like, well, what? Am- so do you not, do you consider yourself an economist or a data I, scientist? Or I, both? I, a little bit of both. I mean, I, my PhD was in economics, but I think I kind of learned, okay, I'm not totally passionate about traditional economics, but I was really interested in kind of people and human beings and what people are up to. And then at about the same time, Google released this tool, Google Trends, which showed what people are searching in different parts of the world at different times. And I just latched onto that because that was like my totally my interest, like what people are really thinking about, even if they're not telling people kind of a mix of economics, but also sociology and some political science. And I think when I started, the term data science didn't really exist. But then I heard this term data science. I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe that's what I, what I am. So since then, I've been kind of exploring these issues. I worked at Google for a while, working with Hal Varian, who I know you, you know well, the great, the chief economist there. And, you know, and I've still been exploring a lot of these kind of just a random, a bit of a random hodgepodge of topics, I'd say, which maybe fits my personality a little bit better. Well, Hal has been saying for a number of years that, you know, the future belongs to the data scientists. <laughs> yeah, he's the one who said the statistician is the sexy job of the 21st century. So. Right, right. So in addition to Google data, you know, what other internet data is there that is interesting? So I think, you know, there's something interesting in all of them. I studied Wikipedia data to learn where successful people tend to be born in the United States. And you see that cities and college towns produce way more people who end up being on Wikipedia, so notable people in, in many different fields than other parts of the United States. Or I studied, this was more disturbing, I studied Stormfront, which is a white nationalist site. So you can study, and I kind of was looking what makes people join that, that site, scraping kind of all the data profiles on that site and a whole bunch of different sites. I think well, so what does about. make them join? So like when Obama was elected, that was like the single best day for Stormfront membership in any other day. And then like, I kind of just looked at what they complain about, like about people of other races or Jews, you know, the people they focus on. And like, one of the things that was very interesting is one of the main complaints was dating market competition, not economic competition. So it's not that this person stole my job. It's that, you know, I saw this beautiful white woman who I loved with this African-American man and like walking down the street and that sent them in a rage. And that was kind of interesting because, you know, we don't usually think of, you know, like, you know, if anything would drive it would be more economic competition. Maybe it's more primal based on kind of that dating competition that drives yeah. people in that way. So 
Facebook data. I studied, actually, that was when I did study to study sports where I did, you can, Facebook allows you to download for every eight individual age and every individual team, how many fans they have. So how many 32 year olds like the New York Mets, how many 33 year olds like the Mets, how many 34 year olds like the Mets. And you can actually go back and see the, these like sharp patterns based on how good the team was when those people were kids. So basically when someone's about eight years old, if like the team wins a world championship, you see consistent across all sports that when usually men, it's not as much strong with women, but if a team wins a championship when someone's eight years old, those people are going to be following them. Men are going to be following them the rest of their lives. And you see it across all these different sports with that individual year of fandom data. So that was one. And then Google searches, I think. What's amazing about Google search is more than any other data set that any topic you study, there's something in Google searches because people search about everything. So, you know, Stormfront has a lot of interesting information if you're interested about white nationalism or hatred or animus towards other groups, but it's not going to teach you about anything about other things. Wikipedia is interesting about success or notability, but it's not going to teach you as much about other things. But Google, you know, any topic you want, there's probably some insight in the search data, health or, or economics or politics or racism or, you know, Domestic violence, I've been looking at that a little bit recently. Google searches can tell us a lot, something about that, really interesting. Pregnancy, people are looking at that. So there's just all these areas where there's so, information. So there. obviously, you know, the thing that's number one in, in terms of people's interest right now is the coronavirus and what we can learn, you know, from data on the internet and, and Google searches and other data on the internet about that. Why don't we start out by maybe explaining to people, I mean, Google had an early, earlier foray into this area with its Google flu tool, I guess you'd call it. And, you know, that was, that seemed to be successful for a while in, in predicting where outbreaks of flu would occur. And then, and then there were some glitches. You want to just talk a little bit about what happened with that? Yeah. So Google flu was this idea it was by, started by Jeremy Ginsburg and some other scientists at Google where they said, okay, we can, the CDC takes about a week or two weeks to kind of collate all their data and tell us where flu outbreaks are happening in the United States. Maybe we can see if people are searching for fever or sore throat or cough or flu, you know, Google searches in an area, maybe flu is going to be, we can expect flu is going to be higher in that area. And they looked back, they got data on the weekly influenza race throughout the United States. They built a model of Google searches related to flu and they found, sure enough, there was a very, very high correlation. And it was paper in Nature. It was the front page of the New York Times. It was really, really exciting. I've just talked to people this week who said they like changed their whole life. They decided they wanted to be in digital disease surveillance after they saw that paper. They just thought it was the coolest, the neatest thing. And this was clearly the future of, of health surveillance. And for a while, the model was doing really well and, and telling people where the flu was likely to be high. And then pretty soon afterwards, the H1N1 uh, swine flu epidemic came about. And what happens is, and then Google flu, all these people were searching for things related to flu and Google flu's model said flu is going to rise to extraordinary levels. And it didn't. What really happened was curiosity about flu had risen to extraordinary levels, whereas actual flu hadn't risen to extraordinary levels. So to some degree, curiosity and fear about flu were in the air more than actual flu was in the air. So then it got also there was all this tension that Google flu had screwed up. And now, you know, these arrogant tech people thought they could understand the world and, you know, it searches and it doesn't work. But and then quietly since then, there's been kind of a resurgence of the flu modeling, realizing that, OK, the first pass of just putting these basket of flu symptoms or these basket of flu searches 
isn't by itself enough. You have to do, be more cautious in picking your terms. But more recently, they found that certain searches, key searches, do seem to be more predictive. So sometimes one thing that might matter is particular searches. A lot of people type complete sentences on Google. It's a little bit surprising. You don't really know why. So they type things like, I'm sad, or I hate my boss, or I'm 45 years old. And we don't totally understand why everybody's typing this instead of just boss issues or something like that would be more common. But these searches can be very powerful related to health as well, because people type, I have a fever, or I have a sore throat, or I have a headache. And those searches are less likely to be due to curiosity and more likely to be a real report of an illness. So, so basically the, what, the next, the kind of Google flu 2.0, I think is going to, it seems like the early evidence is Google flu 2.0 is going to be effective but it's going to be a little more subtle in some of the earlier models, really taking into account of the precise searches people are making, correlating these, having the models be ready to change as relationships between searches and flu may be changing. So kind of picking up, you know, they'd be picking up early on during the swine flu. Oh, some of these original searches which are working are no longer working. Now we have to drop them from the model and put these new things in the model for this time period. So kind of a more advanced model, I think, is going to prove very, very useful. It, it seems like it's kind of a, a subtle problem. I mean, you, the searches need to be common enough that you can actually track the trends, but not common enough that they get distorted by people's curiosity. Yeah, it's a subtle problem. And there are even attempts to control, like add a control for how frequently the flu is in the news, which is an interesting <laughs> attempt kind of divide by the how much you, you've been the, it's in the news. It, it definitely is a subtle problem. I think probably some of it is just really digging within a symptom, really digging in to, let's say searches for I have a fever aren't going up at all. We're going up a tiny bit, but searches for fever, like in general, are going way up. That may be a clue that it's more news than actual mm -hmm. symptoms. Uh, whereas if they're both going up, you know, then we're maybe more likely to say, okay, this is really a symptom related rise. You wrote about this a little bit with the uh, loss of smell in your yeah. recent column, right? Yeah. yeah. So initially, actually, I hadn't realized. I, even though I'm, I'm in this area, I hadn't known the, the Google flu 2.0. I like a lot of people had heard about the flu success and then heard about the failure. And during the early part, everyone's like, Seth, you know a lot about Google searches. Can you tell us something about the symptoms or something about kind of where the search is highest? And I'm like, during this one, we have no hope because everybody is reading about coronavirus. Everybody is searching about the symptoms. No matter what search you look at, it's going to go way up just from the curiosity from the news element. And I was kind of just ignoring it. And then somebody linked me an article by Michael Lewis that we could use searches for what I hadn't even heard about this symptom, that loss of smell was mm -hmm. the symptom. And we could maybe, he was saying we could do a smell test and somebody linked that, hey, are there any Google searches around loss of smell? And I was still in my skeptical mindset, but then I go to Google Trends and literally you can go to Google Trends now and look at the past seven days. So I go past seven days, searches for, I can't smell was the first one I looked at. And it's just like, boom, like, you know, a relationship you never see in data analysis where New York, number one, New Jersey, number two, like Louisiana, wow. Michigan, again, past seven days, longer periods, it's not as clear because I think due to the exponential rise, of the disease, the signal has only gotten really strong the last seven days. And then, you know, other searches, loss of smell also really related. So that was kind of the first time I said, okay, there does seem to be here. And then other people showed me some articles. Some people are doing the same thing that I did at the state level around the world. And they're also seeing using data from Great Britain or the United Kingdom or Spain or Italy. They're also seeing some symptoms or tracking loss of smell being one of them. And I think loss of smell is particularly powerful because it's not a common symptom of other illnesses. So it's maybe more likely 
it's even less likely to be drowned in noise for other reasons. And then, and then it hadn't been the news so much. We'll see going forward. Now, if people are talking about loss of spell, is that going to mess up the indicator? Did I screw it all up by writing this, this article in the New York Times for now? Everyone's going to play to loss of smell and mess up. You know, it's going to be, well, I guess it would still work because it's New York readers maybe. So maybe it'll right, still. Right. Although it's a weird Google Trends Heisenberg principle kind of. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> They, they say, you know, and then I've talked to people, in the, you know, more in the health, health digital surveillance field. They say, you know, it's a, the news issues really breast, like searches around breast cancer are really, really predictive of breast cancer rates, except during breast cancer awareness month. And that's when relationship breaks down. So it's always in this kind of the, the issue with Google Trends data is that curiosity or news factor that can kind of sometimes overwhelm the symptom factor when you're looking at diseases. So... Let's go ahead, Tom. Even less well-known, I guess the smell thing is getting more well-known, but then you also have found that another symptom is people's eyes hurting. Yeah, I want to clarify that. That might be a rare symptom. I don't know. It might be 1% of people. It might be 0.5% of people. What happened is I kind of looked at this, and it hasn't risen as much as the other one. So I looked at this another way where I just looked at, I basically looked at, once I saw that the loss of smell were so correlated to state level, with rates of, of disease, I said, let me just go the, like the opposite way. Let me just look at like a list of, you know, I, I put together dozens of symptoms based on WebMD, knowing nothing about them, even if they had nothing to, you know, were never even mentioned at the disease. And let's just see the past seven days, which of them are in the same region. So which of them are, co- how highly correlated are they with the rates? So basically, are they really high in Louisiana, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Michigan, which thankfully is a very odd group of states. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to really, it's not like all the, it's all the Northeast or it's all the, you know, the educated areas or all, or it's kind of a weird mixture of states that now have this, that if, if all the searches have risen at a high level in those areas, that might be a clue. And one of them that came up very, very high was eye pain, which there's been some discussion around the eyes. I haven't heard too much about it. So, you know, I, so then I kind of looked more into this then I found, well, what about around the world? And you see that eye pain there's a topic, Google Trends allows a topic, which allows you to see many different, search in many different languages, which can be useful for around the world comparisons. You put the eye pain topic in Spain and you see that they rose way, like I think five times or four times their rate or whatever in, in Spain in the end of March. And they seem to have risen a lot in Iran. And then the eye pain topic didn't really rise in Italy. But then I just saw recently that burning eyes, the search for burning eyes rose sixfold in Italy in March. And that did kind of, so when, it, when you put together all the different evidence, I think there is some evidence. Again, I don't know. When you look at how far it actually rises, it's not like I can't smell where it just shoots up to levels never seen. Part of that may be because of the media or some of the other symptoms, fever, shortness of cough, they have bigger rise and are much higher levels. So maybe eye pains, you know, 1% of people or something, but it did make me think maybe there's something here. And then actually someone also showed me that Chris Cuomo, the CNN anchor, who's been kind of chronicling his experience after getting a positive test of COVID-19 had a tweet where he said, the horrible thing about it, the worst thing about it is the eye pain. And then a whole bunch of people responded to that. Some people said eye pain. That's not, I've never heard that sentence. And then some people responded, me too. I know. Eye pain, eye pain. So I don't know. Part of it I've also learned is I think you could say any symptom at this point and people will 
latch on and say, I had that, I had that and have that theory. There's so many people that have had disease or so focused on disease right now that they kind of latch on to, to any theory that you put out now. Um, I, it seems like there's also, I mean, yeah, there, there's a risk of spurious correlations doing it that way. Google used to have this Google correlate tool yeah, yeah. and it would show you these hilarious correlations that seemed almost, they perfectly matched the trends, but they you know, had nothing to do with each other. That was also an issue with Google flu where I think one of the, if you just went backwards and looked at the what search are most correlated with flu rates, I think one of them was like NBA season or something. It's <laughs> something around the NBA and probably because the flu has a seasonal, a strong seasonal component mm-hmm. matching just the NBA component. Yeah, I think the way, that's one of the reasons I didn't, I limited it to like dozens of symptoms. I think when you do dozens of symptoms to get a correlation that high would you know, if you do dozens of symptoms, only one of them really should be statistically significant. But these were things that were coming out with T stats of seven and eight and nine and ten. So I think wow. And then going to other, you know, going to other countries, I think you you do see that as well. I, you know, they're also again, I don't think it's a slam dunk. Some people, I said it should be for further research. I told to a lot of doctors because I'm like, look, I don't know anything about public health. Am I saying anything stupid? And they're like, no, you know, worse comes to worse. Someone who has eye pain is a little more cautious. You know, wearing a mask, going out to a supermarket and maybe they don't spread it to someone who otherwise would have gotten it. So kind of the worst case scenario is probably may, might help a few people. You're not really hurting anybody by knowing the correlations and telling people to explore. explore. So the unintended consequences might just be good ones. Yeah. I mean, you know, you never know. Anytime you do something, you know, unintended consequences can move all different directions. You kind of, you know, I don't know people, someone said that I got an argument with a friend of mine because someone said that nobody who's not an epidemiologist should write anything about this topic like you're literally getting people killed by your stupid model, like physicists or something. I'm going to write a new model of the disease. And, and I'm kind of like, to some degree, if you have something that's interesting or different that might be right, you're getting people killed by not writing that. So it, it could be an argument. Just saying you're, you could, because the story is so much in the news and it related to death and disease, like anything you do, the unintended consequences could be, you know, lead to more loss of life or less loss of life. We don't really know. And I don't really think that, I don't think this is a situation where the experts have it totally, you know, a lot of my best friends are epidemiologists, they're brilliant people, they, you know, but this is one where it doesn't seem like the experts have it totally under control and know exactly what to do. And we just need to wait for them to, to, you know, to solve, you know, listen to their, them and then the problem solved. This does seem more a situation where it's all hands on deck. We don't really know what's going on. We don't have a great solution. You know, how much, I mean, maybe this is, well, I'll ask the question anyway. How much predictive value do these, as in contrast to just telling people what's going on right, you know, right now, how much into the future, how much predictive value do these, these data have? Yeah, I think that remains to be seen. So the early version of Google, before even Google flu trends, was Hal's Google analysis, which I don't know how much you know about, but, but he, he called it now casting, predicting the present. That's one of my favorite titles. So. Yeah, yeah. Was a, predicting the president is a great title. Uh, Hal's like Mr. Wit Wit, like just always, yeah. <laughs> always has witty ways to say things. So now can predict the president. He did what Google Flu did for the economy, which is let's look with a, a coworker of his, Choi, I forget the first name, but it was 2009. It was basically, okay, when people search motorcycles, do they buy more motorcycles? Well, lo and behold, yes, they do. You know, the searches for motorcycles and sales for motorcycles are very, very highly correlated. People search for auto insurance, they buy more auto insurance. And you kind of go through one category after another, unemployment benefits. When people search unemployment benefits, they collect more unemployment benefits. And the idea is, okay, these economic variables sometimes take one week, two weeks, three weeks to come out, four weeks. We can actually know what's going on now. And I think that has put you know, almost all the research I've seen on Google searches has been predicting the present. 
I haven't seen much. Let's try to predict the future using this data. It would be interesting. I don't know. I think I think the predicting the present hasn't been nailed down. You know, yet you have these issues like Google flu where the model kind of blows up a little bit where everyone's kind of like, let's first show that we can predict the present and then maybe uh, see if we can use. But first of all, predicting the present, you know, we haven't nailed predicting the present with Google trends and we haven't nailed predicting the future with traditional data sets. So I think people are a little scared saying, are we going to be able to use this to, you know, to predict what people are right. going to do a, a week, two weeks from now. But yeah, you definitely could imagine people are saying, you know, can you see I was recently talking to NAVE, National Association of Business Economics, and they said, can you see how much people are, how long they think this is going to last from the Google Trends analysis? And I was talking to guy Taylor Schneider from Adobe Digital Insights, who also has is looking at digital data. And he said very intelligently that you have to be more clever. It's not like on the internet, these internet sources, people are saying this is how long something's going to last, but they've been monitoring economic activity for office supplies or back to school stuff, or what, what about like wedding dresses or wedding planning? Like there are probably ways through the analysis, you can have an, a sense of what people expect the country to look like in a few weeks. And that kind of gets to the, the idea of predicting the future, or maybe wedding dresses or wedding supplies or something is, is a way to predict the future. And another one I looked at, no, another one I didn't look at. So there's been this question, is there going to be a baby boom from the COVID-19 pandemic? And you can imagine going either way, because either you could say, okay, now all these couples are locked in their apartment together. They're going to be having more sex. Nine months from now, we're going to see a rise in babies. That's the type of thing you'd see after a blizzard when nobody can go outside. What happens nine months later? Baby boom. Well, well the famous one was the Cuban Missile Crisis. Okay. Where, <laughs> where, <laughs> where nine months after that, there was an uptick in births. <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't know that. Thanks for thanks, Tom. But so that's like one side. But then the other side is, well, no, economy is crashing. Everyone's unemployed. What happens when the economy does bad? Births go down because people feel like they can't support another child. So this wasn't me. It was a, a company called Arc Invest who also has been monitoring trends, and they put together a chart where they've been looking at seasonally adjusted searches for pregnancy tests, and they found a big drop so far. So so far, it looks like you know that might be an early indicator. Uh, that we're not going to get a baby boom. We're more likely to get a baby bust out of this. But well, what about uh, divorces or, or other negative Yeah, things? divorces have also seemed to have gone down. So divorce mm-hmm. searches seem to have gone down. Uh-huh. I don't know. You know that, that was a little bit surprising to me. Maybe people are so busy, they don't have time to think about what they think about their spouse. They're like in, in like, you know, survival mode or something. But, but, well, they, but they're trapped in a, in a confined space with their spouse that might <laughs> You don't know how that could go either way, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's again, one of those questions that could go either way. And so far, the search data, you know, I haven't looked, I looked at it a week ago. I, I haven't looked at the updated, but I thought there might be a rise in divorce searches and they, they seem to have been dropping. Yeah, it did surprise me because I, I kind of thought, you know, I have a darker view of marriage, maybe. I had Tom's view that if you're combined with your spouse for, you know, extended period of time, they're going to drive you totally insane, but... I also heard a joke. I, that sounds like a Daily Show or Colbert thing. I can't remember, but that you know, we may not have a baby boom, but we're going to have a huge podcast boom. <laughs> so, just getting back to so, so basically, in terms of the so the Google data is not probably going to give us a lot of help in trying to figure out when to when to restart things. I mean, I guess the only thing it could, yeah, not here, maybe, but you know, so one of the reasons I was looking at that symptom stuff is my epidemiologist friends said that. It can be really helpful in parts of the world where testing is bad to actually know how many people have the disease. Risk, right? 
Yeah, well, yeah, that's the, yeah, what part, yeah, how much the U.S., how great is it in the U.S., but definitely, as bad as it may be in the U.S., some parts of the world, it's just a total mess, you know, so I talk about in the piece how Ecuador is searching for loss of smell more than anywhere else in the world, even though if you actually look at the rates of positive tests per capita, it's higher than other places in South America, but it's not up there with Europe or the U.S. or Australia or Canada, so, and they could be an area where, you know, they might look at their official data and say, okay, it's not that bad. We can loosen the reins and you look at the search data and say, no, everybody's complaining they're losing their smell. Let's wait this one out a little more. So if the testing data were bad enough, you could potentially use this as an other indicator to know, I guess, yeah, opening up. Yeah, I don't I mean, you could also figure out other problems. I'm, I'm just like brainstorming, but I'm sure there are other, I think, you know, the next, there are going to be all these second and third level effects from shutting down our economy. And I, I do wonder if Google trends could be helpful in uncovering those, not even the ones we expect. Like it may be just like looking what searches are rising and we may find out a problem that we didn't even know about that is caused by this situation that could be worth exploring. That, that one shocked me if we, you know, because we've never really done an experiment where we just said nobody go out, everybody has to stay at home. That's just such a dramatic change in society. And we're kind of, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if there are a whole bunch of second and third order effects that nobody's predicting right now. And maybe Google trends, we have one place to uncover them among other places, but. So any way, aside from the health effects, I mean, are there any change, any, have you uncovered any changes in other things? For example, is there any change in the amount of political polarization in the country or have you tried to look into uh, that? Yeah, I haven't looked at that at the Google searches. You know, that's one you may just look at the, there, there are some questions where I think the poll, the survey may just be the better way to do it. You know, I don't know that, you know, that Google trends the best way to measure polarization. I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe it could be. I, I haven't looked at that. I, I looked a little bit at, Brendan Nehan, he's a professor at Dartmouth, reached out to me and suggested, what about anti-China sentiment in Google searches? We didn't see as much as we were expecting, which was almost interesting. We didn't see like a big rise in searches, you know, like sometimes you see these really nasty searches people make, like people make, not even they say search Chinese flu, replace Chinese with like a five letter epithet for oh. Chinese. And they search something like that. And, but the rise was pretty moderate. Like, you know, a few people were searching that, but wasn't like, Oh my God. Like there are other periods where you see like a real explosion of racism in, in Google searches. I wrote about a little bit how many people search for really nasty jokes about African Americans when Obama was elected president. Like that was just, you know, was huge factor in the data. Wow. But China stuff is not really like, oh my God, there's you know some widespread anti-Chinese sentiment. So that is, that is interesting. Is there anything else that you have that might be surprising to listeners in terms of types of searches that seem to be associated with this particular period? Well, I think, so one of the things is when the National Association of Business Economists, they're like, what's going on in the economy? Their question was, what's going on in the economy with Google searches? They had the same question to Taylor Schneider, who's at Adobe, who's monitoring digital. They built a kind of purchase data set. I forget exactly how they put it together, but they're monitoring purchases, high frequency data. And both of us were like, there are huge changes to the economy, but they're almost all what you'd expect. Like teleconferencing is way up, like sports tickets is way down. Like it's kind of just like, right. it's like unprecedented levels of changes. We've never seen a 200% rise in teleconferencing or 80% drop in sports tickets. Or, you know, he was talking about the purchase data. It was the same thing, like, you know, toilet paper right up, you know, home exercise equipment up. Like, you know, it's, it's that one was a little bit, maybe a little bit more surprising, but still like you could, they were all kind of like, I think all of them were, you know, the big changes were all things that we would have pretty much guessed what would happen when everybody's home all the time. 
and a little less out of work, but, but it's definitely an area to monitor. Particularly, I think it might be over time, like the more interesting ones, we were kind of focusing early on on like the big changes and the 60, 70, 80, you know, to up to 200% rises or the, you know, the 60 to hundred percent drops are all things you'd expect. I think the more surprising things will be the 10% rise, the 10% fall where it could have gone either way. But those take maybe a few weeks to really kind of settle out that it's not just noise. Like the surprising thing is I don't think you're going to see like, you know, people, you know, twice purchases. You could say like it goes either way. Now kids are, you know, there's an economic hit, but then kids are around, you know, kids are home a lot. So they're, they may be demanding more toys. You could imagine it go either way. Like the search is so far about flat, but like maybe over a few months it'll settle into, okay, this has led to more toys purchases or this has led less toys purchases, but it's not going to be like one of the big changes uh, but it'll be interesting to see some of these categories that are maybe more uncertain. It'll see how they be interesting over the weeks as the noise kind of dies down to see kind of where they settle in this new normal. Have you seen any interests or gotten any requests from government agencies trying to track the economy? So in the financial crisis, the Fed looked for all kinds of ways to monitor things in real time faster than economic data normally came in. Are people talking to you about that or do you see them? Yeah, they have. Reached out. I, mean, reach out. I know they, I think they've reached out to Google a lot. So they mm-hmm. definitely are people looking and monitoring this one. I think, you know, this one is just to some degree, like we know, again, it's, we know the changes are enormous. Yeah. We know kind of where the changes are. It's more about how is this going to stop or, yeah, I don't know. Like, again, we know nobody's buying sports tickets right now. Like we know nobody's, you know, bars and restaurants or no, people aren't visiting them or people aren't, you know, flying flying as much and, and going to looking up cruises. Like all these changes are kind of a little bit in the no department. We know the changes are enormous. We know it's like, okay, when are we going to, when are we going to stop it? They have had some success predicting the unemployment rates mm-hmm. using searches for file for unemployment. A friend of mine, Paul Goldsmith, Pinkham and Aaron Sojourner have been working on that. And they, they've built a really nice model of predicting unemployment benefits. But it's another one where like the Fed knows that unemployment's going to unprecedented levels. Like they right. really, there's no... And it's not really stopping or anything. It's kind of just, that that's already built into the models. More of the question is, how do we stop this? How do we fix it? How do we get people up and running? How do we get the economy up and running again? When do we get the economy up and running again? Are the, are, you say you talk to a lot of epidemiologists. Are they incorporating any Google search terms in their models? Yeah, so there are some people who are doing this. There, there is actually a field, digital disease surveillance, and it's a growing field. And there are, you know, again, it's, it's a young field. So it's not, it's kind of more in the exploratory phase, although I think this crisis is kind of pushing it to the emergency phase. Or, you know, or, if the, I mean, the ones, the models they talk about, you know, that seems to be well publicized, University of Washington model, Pennsylvania model, and I'm sure a couple of others. Do you know if they incorporate Google search terms? As no, well? I don't think they incorporate Google searches, but... Or, you know, there are other tools to use. I just read a paper on using the uptick of influenza-like illnesses. You see an uptick in influenza-like illnesses reported in different parts of the United States, seasonally adjusted since the crisis started, with most of the upticks in places that have had big outbreaks like New York, New Jersey, Louisiana, Michigan. That could also be used in the model, which, to the best of my knowledge, aren't being used in the models. Yeah, that seems to be the kind of data that um, New York City collects. They report number of people hospitalized with flu-like symptoms or something like that. So yeah. it's exactly the data that they seem to want. Yeah. Well, I think we're approaching the end of our time. Scott, any uh, last questions? No. no. This is great. Well, this was a pleasure, Seth, and we will have to do it again sometime. Yeah, definitely. Take care. Hopefully we'll Thanks call it. Thanks, Thanks so much. much. Bye, Seth.